Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There's another host that is joining me today, Daniel Sun. Hey guys, what's up? Now real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there are a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 139 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for your listening pleasure. Now, to see this full list of Patreon episodes, you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on the Patreon Episodes tab, and it will take you to our Patreon website, where you will see the entire list of our previously posted exclusive Patreon episodes that we have published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is a Theories Thursday where we discuss how Hobby Lobby legally purchased ancient artifacts for millions of dollars, as well as the 1951 beating of seven men by the LAPD. So you get access to that episode, as well as all of the others, for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or Spotify, and that helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is about the strange death of Philip Shu. So how today's episode will go is that we'll start off talking about who is Philip Shu, and then we'll go into his accident, as well as his autopsy, and then into strange facts and findings, and then theories. And then, of course, wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. In 2003, a United States Air Force colonel received a letter warning him about individuals who were planning to murder him. A few months later, in the early morning hours, the colonel left his home and started driving his normal route to work. However, a few hours later, his vehicle was found crashed into a tree with his lifeless body inside. On the surface, it seemed like a normal accident, but during the autopsy, many strange injuries were discovered. The colonel's pinky finger had been amputated. Both of his nipples had been cut off and duct tape was found around his wrists and feet. After the autopsy, his death was ruled a suicide. However, this left many individuals wondering if foul play was involved in his death. This is The Strange Death of Philip Shu. All right, so to start this episode off, we first need to talk about who Philip Shu was. So Dan, you want to start it off and tell us a little bit about him? Of course. So like Aaron said, let's get to know who Philip Shue was. Now, from our hours and hours of deep and dark sleuthing on the internet, 
we found out that Philip Shue was born on July 22, 1948, in Brookville, Ohio. He graduated from Wisconsin University in 1970 with a Bachelor of Science degree in pre-med, and then he decided to enter the United States Air Force. It was around this time that Philip would also marry his first wife, Nancy, to whom he would have a son with, named Jeffrey. My name is Jeff. Shortly after that, Philip went through officer training school in the Air Force, where he would then be selected for navigator training at Mather Air Force Base, which was located in California. During his navigator training, Philip earned the Honor of Distinguished Graduate. Now, just an FYI, Honor of Distinguished Graduate just means that someone recognized him as being exceptional, who set themselves apart by making extraordinary, significant contributions to our nation and or their communities. So pretty much an award saying, good job. So following that, in 1978, Philip would complete his training as a physician assistant in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he would start working in a private practice until 1980 when he got accepted into medical school at Wright State University. Once Philip completed medical school in 1984, he took a four-year psychiatric residency program at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base Medical Center in Dayton, Ohio. Now, during his four years at Wright-Patterson, Philip would move up the ranks quickly. In 1988, he was awarded the position of Chief Resident and also received the Outstanding Resident Award. Now, just another FYI, Philip Shue is a very highly decorated veteran. He has a ton of awards and medals. And if we sat here reading them all off, it would take us around 20 minutes or so. So anyway, we're going to continue on. All right. So a short time later, Philip was promoted to major and was assigned to Elgin Air Force Base as chief medical director of inpatient mental health. In 1990, he successfully earned his board certification from the American Board of Psychiatric and Neurology. And if you can't tell already, Philip was a go-getter. He just continued bettering himself and continued just, you know, climbing up the ranks. So two years later, in 1992, Philip stated that there was just no more love in his marriage anymore. So he and his wife, Nancy, ended up going through an angry and nasty divorce. Then one year later, in 1993, Philip was sent to Travis Air Force Base in California. During this time period, he was awarded the Air Force... Achievement Medal for Leadership as Chief Medical Officer of an Emergency Medical Task Team. Now, during that same year of 1993, Philip would marry his second wife, Tracy, who was also in the Air Force and was a lieutenant colonel. Now, in 1995, Philip attended the primary course in aerospace medicine, where he earned the honor of distinguished graduate once again. Then in 1998, Philip attended his second residency in aerospace medicine occupational health at the School of Aerospace Medicine at Brooks Air Force Base in Texas. These names of these places just get longer and longer. Yeah, it just seems like they tack on, you know, just, hey, let's add a couple more names to it. So in 2001, Philip graduated from the three-year program and would take an assignment as a psychiatrist slash aerospace medicine physician at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. Now, fast forward two years later, in spring of 2003, Philip, at this point in his life, was 54 years old and was planning on retiring from the United States Air Force that fall. However, on April 16th, 2003, Philip died in a mysterious car accident. And that right there is pretty much Philip Shue's life in a nutshell. So now we're going to get into the main reason why we chose this topic today. The mysterious circumstances surrounding Philip's death. So Dan, would you like to start that off for us and tell us about the day 
this accident took place and what all occurred during it. Of course. So it was around 5.30 a.m. on Wednesday, April 16th, 2003. That morning, Philip ended up kissing his wife Tracy goodbye, walked outside, got into his 1995 Mercury Tracer, and headed to work at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. However, he would never make it there. Two hours later, Philip's car was found on the side of the interstate, wrecked with his driver's side caved in. Philip had suffered a major head trauma as a result of the crash and was killed instantly. The Kendall County Police ended up showing up to the wreck and interviewed two eyewitnesses who stated that they had seen the wreck take place. They stated, and we quote, The car traveled in the center median for several hundred yards and negotiated between two light poles, then hit a object in the median, causing the car to become airborne, then coming down on all fours. The vehicle then corrected and re-entered the highway, continuing westbound on Interstate I-10. The car continued on the highway for another few minutes, traveling around 60 to 65 miles per hour. And then just after the Johns Road's exit, the car left the highway, crossed the side median access road, went off-road, traveled about 43 feet, clipped the tree on the right front of it, and then spun sharply in a clockwise direction before striking another tree on the driver's door. So that is what the eyewitnesses stated. And just a little FYI before we move forward, is that there was no evidence of where Philip was between 5.30 a.m. until a little bit before 8 a.m. when he crashed. He did not show up to work like he had originally planned, and no one had seen him in the area at all. Also, another side note is that at the time of the crash, Philip was heading away from work and past the exit that he would have taken to get home. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we continue on with the story. All right. So an ambulance ended up arriving a few moments after Philip's crash, and it stated that Philip had suffered fatal head injuries in the crash, and they did not attempt to revive him. Now, this is where things start to get weird. So a few odd things that the EMTs initially noticed about Philip is that he had duct tape wrapped around his wrists and ankles with four to five inches of it dangling from each extremity. In addition to that, the EMTs also noticed that Philip's uniform was open and bloody. He had a deep incision on his chest. Both of his nipples had been cut off with what looked like a medical instrument. Also, Philip's left pinky was missing, as if someone had cut it off. The EMTs also found $47 in Philip's pocket, but his wallet was missing. The left rear pocket of his trousers had been cut. However, the cut only extended through the outer material, so it was impossible for his wallet to fall out of that hole. So after Philip was out of the vehicle, the police started looking through his car and found a working cell phone in it. However, telephone records confirmed that no calls were made from the phone prior to the crash. Police also found a straight razor, two small pocket knives, and a latex glove. The knives were small Swiss Army knives that had dull blades on them, which of course is normal for those types of knives. Another thing that the police reportedly found was an unopened package of small gauge needles in the glove box of his car. Shortly after the incident was cleaned up at around 3.30 p.m., the sheriff and the minister went to the home of Philip to notify his wife Tracy that he had been in a car wreck and died. A couple hours later, Al Augsier from the Department of Public Safety 
arrived at Phillip's home to speak with Tracy. As Al was discussing the crash with Tracy, he asked her, and I quote, Is there any reason why your husband would have duct tape around his wrists and ankles? Of course, Tracy did not know why her husband would have his wrists and ankles duct taped, so she was kind of like stunned by that question. Shortly after that, Al ended up leaving, and this was sort of like the beginning of Tracy wondering, hey, did something more happen to my husband? Was he murdered, you know? Yeah, that's a weird question to ask, and then just like, like, okay, thanks. Yeah. All right, so a few days after the accident, an autopsy of Philip was ordered. Now, we do have the report from the first autopsy, and we're going to read it, and it says the following. April 17th, 2003, Bear County Autopsy Report. The t-shirt that Colonel Philip Sue was wearing was still tucked in at the waist, but had a tear from the neckline to the point about two inches above the waist. The tear is more consistent with being cut rather than torn. The shirt was bloody from the chest area downwards, but not on the shoulders. The bottom portion of the outer shirt was cut or torn and had buttons missing. There is massive head and brain trauma. Two large areas of abrasions and contusions on the forehead and large lacerations on both sides of the face. There are multiple displaced skull fractures and multiple lacerations on the brain. The joint on the left pinky finger was amputated. In addition, there are multiple small contusions around both hands. It is not clear whether the finger amputation was a part of the trauma of the accident. Both nipples have been removed. The incisions were quite superficial, with parts only going through partial skin thickness. Also on the chest, there are scratches and abrasions that are consistent with hesitation marks. There are no wounds identified as being consistent with a struggle. In the toxology report, lidocaine was detected in the blood. However, Philip self-prescribed a cream prior to his death, and this cream is the source of the lidocaine. The autopsy report then concluded by saying that the cause of death was suicide. So that right there was the first autopsy of Philip. And it is worth noting that Philip's wife, Tracy, she had no idea that her husband's body had his nipples missing, his pinky finger had been cut off, and there was like a large gash in his chest. All she knew was that her husband got into a car wreck and he died. Okay? Now, how Tracy learned about her husband pretty much being mutilated is pretty messed up. So, it was a little more than a month after her husband's funeral. Tracy ended up receiving a phone call from a reporter with a San Antonio newspaper. The reporter asked Tracy for a comment regarding her husband's mutilated body. Of course, Tracy was like, Mutilation? What mutilation are you talking about? The reporter then told her about the details of the autopsy and its findings. What a hell of a way to learn about that, huh? That is a bad way to learn about that. Yeah. So, of course, Tracy was extremely upset that her husband's death was ruled a suicide, and she suspected that he had actually had been murdered. So, Tracy ended up ordering a second autopsy to be done on her husband by a private doctor. In August of 2003, a Dr. Cyril H. Vett performed a second autopsy on Colonel Philip Shue. In the autopsy report, the doctor concluded that the information does not indicate that Philip's death was merely a suicide. The report suggested that another person may have been involved in his death, and he recommended that the case be listed as pending further investigation. 
So the doctor cited several pieces of evidence in his report that supported this conclusion. So one piece of evidence that the doctor stated was the presence of duct tape around the wrists and feet of Philip, that the duct tape had no fingerprints on it, which was suggestive of another person being involved in his death. Another thing the doctor pointed at was the nipples of Philip being removed with surgical precision, as well as his finger being amputated. However, there were no large amounts of blood, which suggests that the trauma occurred somewhere outside of Philip's vehicle and that another person or persons caused it. The doctor also noted that the current life events that Philip was going through did not support suicide. Philip was just about to retire from the military. He was just accepted into a forensic psychiatry fellowship program, and he had just purchased a new home. The last thing that the doctor mentioned in his second autopsy report was the findings of lidocaine in Philip's blood during his first autopsy. The doctor stated that the cream that was being used as the reason for the lidocaine in Philip's blood, that was not the case because the cream that the first autopsy was referring to contained prilocaine, which was not detected in Philip's blood. Due to this fact, the doctor concluded that the lidocaine detected in Philip's blood during his first autopsy had to have been from another source. Now, even though Tracy had this second autopsy done and that medical examiner suggested that Philip did not commit suicide, the police and the authorities did not care. Authorities in charge of the investigation kept Philip's death labeled as a suicide. However, Tracy refused to accept those findings and fought to have her husband's cause of death changed to homicide and that his killers be brought to justice. Eventually in June of 2008, Texas Judge Bill Palmer ordered to have Colonel Philip Shue's death ruling changed from a suicide to homicide. However, Kendall County authorities and the United States Air Force both refused to comply with the ruling and left his death listed as suicide. To this day, Tracy remains active on website forums and various avenues, spreading the word about the death of her husband in hopes of one day finding justice for him. So that right there is the story of the strange death of Philip Shue. However, the story does not stop here because we dug deep into it and we found a lot of bizarre things. So Dan, do you want to start it off for us and tell us about the first strange fact and finding that we came across? All right, so our first strange fact and finding is about some letters that were sent to Philip prior to his death that contained pretty much warnings of individuals wanting to kill him. So these unsigned letters were delivered to Philip and he showed his wife. The first letter said, and we quote, Dear Dr. Shu, please read this letter. You may be in danger. I'm writing because I remember you as a kind and caring doctor, and I can't just sit by and not help you by telling you what I know. I'll try to keep it short so you are certain to read it. A friend of mine who worked with Censored, your ex-wife's husband, told me some scary things. I don't know, Censored, or your ex-wife myself. Sorry, I don't even know her name. My friend told me they wish you were dead so they could collect life insurance. I don't understand why they would have life insurance on you, but that's what my friend told me. My friend thinks they may actually be planning something. I don't know if they would actually hurt you, but please be careful. I had to write you. If I didn't, I couldn't bear the thought of something bad happening to you that I could have prevented by telling you what I heard. If I hear anything more specific, I will let you know. 
please be careful. I'm sorry to worry you, but I just couldn't not write and find out later that I could have stopped a bad thing from happening. So that was the first letter that Philip received. And of course, like we stated, he ended up showing it to his wife, and they decided for some odd reason to not take it to the police. A short time later, Philip received a second letter from an anonymous friend that said the following. The plan is now delayed, but not canceled. Be careful. I can't identify myself because they may find out and stop letting information slip. So that was the second letter. And like we said, Philip received those two letters. He didn't tell the police about them. He only showed them to his wife, who then took the letters and stored them away. Now, she eventually, of course, forgot about the letters and then her husband died. And then when Al came over there and asked her, you know, why would his wrist and feet be duct taped? kind of made her question her husband's death as being, hey, maybe he got killed. And then it reminded her, oh, he had these letters written to him months prior. So she ended up finding those letters and then handing them over to the police. However, the police never followed up investigating the letters and finding out who actually wrote them. I know they showed those letters to uh, the life insurance companies. Yeah, but the life insurance companies didn't care. Yeah, of course they didn't. Yeah. So there you go. That's our first strange fact and finding. So Dan, do you want to tell us about this next one? Yup. So our next strange fact and finding is about Philip's ex-wife, Nancy Timpson. So Philip and his ex-wife were married for around 20 years until they ended up getting divorced, which was finalized in 1992. Now, after the divorce, Nancy ended up having control over the insurance policies involving Philip's shoe. These were two insurance policies for $500,000 each, equaling a total of $1 million in life insurance on her ex-husband. Now, whenever Philip got those threatening letters kind of like warning him, he decided to confront Nancy about it and asked her, hey, I'm getting these letters stating that I'm going to get killed for this life insurance thing. You need to cancel those policies you have on me. Of course, Nancy refused to do so, saying that she could not afford to cancel them, which in my opinion, I don't understand. It costs money to have life insurance policies. I saw something about that a while back. When you get a life insurance policy, you can actually use that life insurance policy like money or like it's like kind of like a loan or something. Oh, you can borrow against it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Following that, Philip wrote his ex-wife a letter saying, I feel helpless to prevent my eventual murder if you hire good assassins. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but damn, man. Anyways, so Nancy ended up replying to Philip's letter and saying, and we quote, this may have been someone's terribly sick idea of a game or a joke. I am not any further involved and never was. So Nancy denied it. And never was, kind of like alluding to the fact that I know who, you know, is threatening, but I'm not involved in it. I am not any further involved. It's like, it went too far, I stopped. But then again, I you know, never actually was involved. Yeah. So we fast forward after Philip died. Tracy ended up filing a civil lawsuit against Nancy to prevent her from collecting the $1 million in life insurance. As part of the lawsuit, Tracy's lawyers demanded that Nancy answer their questions during the deposition. Now, how did Nancy reply to this demand? Well, she sat down during the deposition, and every time that the attorneys or anyone would ask her a question, she denied answering it and just pleaded the fifth. You know, which the fifth pretty much means gives her the right to remain silent and refusal to answer any questions that could be used against her in a criminal case. And what Nancy would state was, and we quote, 
on the advice of counsel, the pursuant to the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, I assert my right against self-incrimination and refuse to answer this question on the ground that any answer might incriminate me. So that's what she said every time someone asked her a question, she would say that. Yep. So after Nancy was asked over 20 times about questions regarding her ex-husband and the life insurance policy, with each question, Nancy would state, on the advice of my counsel, I plead the fifth, yada, yada, yada. Yep. So after the deposition, Nancy did indeed end up getting the life insurance payout of $1 million on her ex-husband. And something else that's interesting about Nancy is that the court documents showed that she was a board-certified sex therapist who studied in the practice of sadomasochism. Which, Dan, you're an expert on that. What is that? I hate you, and I don't know how to describe it. Like, you get pleasure from, like, self-mutilation or mutilation in general. Like, just causing someone, I guess, pain. Yeah, so the meaning of sadomasochism is deriving pleasure often of a sexual nature, from the infliction of physical or psychological pain on another person or on oneself or both. Oh. Yeah. There you go. That's what that means. So that right there gives you a little something to think about, you know, and let that simmer in the back of your head, you know, about the ex-wife collecting, you know, life insurance policy, all that stuff, because we're going to go back to that during our theory section. Oh, yeah. Yep. But before we do, let's continue on with the strange facts. So, Dan, what's this next one about? So, our next strange fact and finding is about Philip's 1973 attack. So, on January 22nd, 1973, Philip arrived at the medical clinic in Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa, Japan. He reported that an intruder had struck him on the head, but he did not lose consciousness. However, in additional reports, it states that Philip finally admitted that he had lost consciousness for about five minutes. Later that year, in late 1973, Philip had three episodes of loss of consciousness with bladder incontinence, meaning that, you know, he lost consciousness, fell down, and he pissed himself or pooped himself, either or. Now, one of those episodes occurred during a flight in which he was serving as the navigator. Now, after that, of course, he underwent an extensive evaluation for a seizure disorder. Now, it was eventually determined that Philip did not have a seizure disorder and that the reason for his seizures were not specifically defined, meaning the doctors had no idea what the hell was causing his seizures. So there you go. He had some intensive head trauma in 1973. All right, so let's go into our next strange fact and finding, which is about Kendall County Police and the way that they handled this case. So years later, after the case was pretty much closed, the Kendall County Police ended up coming forward and admitting that they handled this case completely wrong. They ended up mishandling a lot of the evidence, and they deviated from standard procedures that they had, and there was violations of privacy protection information that they had, you know, screwed up on during the death investigation, and of course that was all leaked out to the press. Now the Kendall County Police, even though uh, they admitted to that, they refused to hold a public hearing to talk about it. They didn't want to take any questions. They were just saying, hey, yeah, we acknowledge we screwed up. That's it. Yeah. So pretty much what that just states is that when they got to the crime scene or the crash scene, they figured that he just drove off the road. And since it was just committed suicide, that there was nothing else to really search for. 
to search the vehicle and all that stuff. So they pretty much ignored the standard procedures of looking at the crime scene and all that, looking at for evidence. Kind of sucks. It does. Yeah, it does. All right, so let's get on to this next strange fact and finding. All right, so our next strange fact and finding is about missing medical records. Now, after the two autopsies were done, the Office of Armed Forces investigated the death of Philip. On May 5th, 2005, they ended up releasing their findings on a 20-page report. Now, there were a lot of strange things in this report. For example, the Armed Forces stated that they were able to get copies of Colonel Phillips' military medical records from 1970 to 74. However, there were no records available for 1984 to 1999, whenever Philip ended up going back into the service. After his death, his main military medical record could not be located either. Yeah, it just, boop, vanished. Which, hmm, makes you wonder what he was involved in, you know? Yeah. Anyway, all right, so this next strange fact and finding is about a doctor that Philip was seeing for his mental health. Now, before we get into that, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. All right, welcome back. And we actually found this information in this 20-page report as well that the armed forces did. So this doctor was interviewed, and he stated that six months prior to Philip's death, that Philip had told him that he imagined his car had gone out of control on his way to work, and that great violence was done to him. The doctor went on to say that the rest of the discussion was about Philip connecting that feeling to his fear of losing control while in his uniform. So pretty much Philip came to the doctor and said, hey, I imagined for some odd reason that my car, you know, went out of control on my way to work and I had great violence done to me. And the doctor was like, oh, that's you, you know, having a fear of losing control while you're in your uniform, right? Since you're so high ranked up, you're, you're only imagining that. That's not going to happen, which uh. that is very weird that he imagined that months prior to his death. And this happened after he got those letters, too. Yep. So it's almost like he was he had a premonition. Yeah. Damn. All right. So tell us about this next strange fact and finding, Dan. All right, this next strange fact I'm finding is about Philip's legal history. Now, as we dug deep into his criminal record, we did not expect to find, like, anything, really. So, we were really surprised when we did. So, Aaron, do you want to tell us about that, the findings? Absolutely. So, Philip had an incident while he was on a flight, and this occurred on July 1st, 2000. So, Philip was on a flight from White Plains, New York, to Chicago, and the incident resulted in Philip being briefly detained by the Chicago police when the flight landed. Now, according to the Chicago police, a flight attendant indicated that Philip got out of his seat while the fastened seatbelt sign was on. When the flight attendant stood up to direct him back to his seat, he slapped her on the back. The report also indicated that another flight attendant witnessed the slap and stated, yes, that's what happened. Now, when the plane landed, Philip was handcuffed and taken into custody by the Chicago Police Department. 
upon learning that the incident took place over the state of Michigan and therefore out of the jurisdiction, the Chicago police released Philip without charging him and indicated that the incident would be investigated at a later date. On October 18th of 2000, Shu made a voluntary statement to an FBI agent regarding the incident. In the statement, he said that he was at the lavatory when the fasten seatbelt sign went on. He returned to his seat, but the light went off again within 30 seconds. At that point, he got back up to use the lavatory. While he was standing at the lavatory door, he lost his balance due to a recurrence of the turbulence. He reached out to catch his balance and brushed the shoulder of one flight attendant with his arm. He was later very surprised when a senior flight attendant told him that the police would be meeting the flight. I'm guessing after the flight. <laughs> yeah. The FBI report concluded by indicating that the information he provided would be given to the appropriate authority at the United States Attorney's Office in Chicago. In both of the available reports, that is no indication that Shu was ever formally charged with a crime. In a summary of the incident that he wrote in apparent preparation for legal action, Shu indicated that the airlines paid for a hotel for the night for himself and his wife and rescheduled the next leg of their flight for the next morning. Philip later cited that this incident as a reason for declining orders to command a squadron. He said that he wanted to ensure that his name was legally cleared before taking a command position. His rationale was that it would be an embarrassment to the Air Force to have a commander arrested on such charges. So that right there is the first kind of like incident, well not first, but one of two incidences that Philip had with the police. The next incident was him actually filing a legal complaint against himself in June of 1999. So Philip reported to the police that he was working in the library when he got up to use the men's restroom. When he returned, his laptop had been stolen. He notified the school security and a report was filed. In the narrative dated December 6, 2000, that was found on Philip's computer. He indicated that the computer was returned later in the month. He stated that it was placed on the hood of his car with a note that said, if he reported anything to the police, others would die. In addition, the hard drive had been wiped clean, resulting in the loss of the only copy he had of his thesis that he was working on for his class that he was attending. The narrative also indicated that Philip had not previously divulged the return of the computer, like meaning he didn't tell anybody about it. Did he tell anybody that it was stolen? Oh, yeah, he did. He told his uh, professor. He's like, hey, I can't turn my thesis in. My laptop got stolen, and it has the only copy of my thesis on it. And then, of course, he gets his laptop back. Hard drive was wiped. Note on it that said if you reported anything to the police, you would die. Yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, a little weird. Yeah. So let's go on to our next strange fact and finding, which is about his financial situation. All right, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. It's our last one, so don't go nowhere. All right, welcome back. So this next strange fact and finding, of course, is about his financial situation, which we decided to do a review of Phillips financials through the database by the Air Force investigation team. We didn't find any like real major problems, but the only thing they found was that the same week that Philip died, he and his wife had signed a contract to buy a home in Birmingham, Alabama for $690,000. Now, Philip was getting a new job in Alabama. And from that job, he would have made an annual salary of $54,083 with benefits, and his retirement pay would have been around $4,400 a month. Then, if you add his wife's financials, which she, of course, was retired, and she would receive her retirement pay at the time, 
which would have been $3,200 a month. Philip and Tracy would have had close to $7,600 in retirement payments per month. Then depending on whether or not Philip's annual salary was the gross income or not, you know, net pay, but with just that number, he would have made another $4,500 a month. So that would have been around $12,100 a month they would have had. So there was no financial problems. They seemed to be doing perfectly fine. Yeah. And they would have no issues paying back that mortgage on that large purchase. Exactly. Yeah. So we tried to look into Nancy, who was Philip's ex-wife, and her husband, and into their son, Jeffrey. My name is Jeff. Okay. So we didn't really find any evidence on how Nancy, which is Philip's ex-wife, her husband and Jeffrey's son, like how they were financially. But what we did find is that Tracy stated in court that Nancy was in bad credit card debt and Jeff was in a very bad financial state of where he owed over $100,000 in debt. Now, supposedly those were shown in court documents, but we were not able to locate those actual documents. Yeah. Which, mm, we found out that whenever the investigators tried to question Nancy and Jeff, who Jeff is the son of Philip, both of them declined. They said, no, we are not going to answer any questions. Yeah, and uh, at the time, Jeffrey would have been, what, 33, 34 years old when Philip died in the car accident? Yep. So it's not like he didn't know anything. He just refused to answer any questions. Which is very odd. It is very odd, considering father just passed away in a car accident. Then you're just going to sit there and be like, I don't have anything to say. Mm. All right, so let's get on to our next strange fact and finding, which is over the Air Force Special Investigations Unit. All right. During the investigation of Philip's death, the Air Force OSI, which is the Office of Special Investigations, had not contacted Tracy at all during their investigation. So Tracy took her sister up to the office to make a statement and find out what was going on with the investigation. She ended up saying, and we quote, I went there with my sister to make a statement. I couldn't understand why more than a week after my husband's death had I not been contacted by the OSI and had to seek them out myself. When I met with the agent, I couldn't believe his attitude. He had this weird smile on his face while he talked in circles, not giving us any real guidance or help. It was like he either didn't care I had lost my husband to a horrible death, or he was amused somehow by it. He didn't lose that smirk at any time throughout his condescending remarks. I finally had to interrupt his rambling long enough to ask him why he was smiling like that. I inquired what it was that he found to be so humorous. He claimed nothing and got up to get his superior officer. When the female major arrived, she tried to establish her authority and brushed me off with a remark that we would have to schedule an appointment to take the statement. I told her, we'll do it right now, so she had to accept it without any further delay. What gets me is the Air Force knew the death threats against my husband before he died, and yet they blew them off. The OSI is well aware of the suspicious nature of my husband's death, yet they showed a callous disregard for my suffering. There is no excuse for the way I was treated. Other than that day, I have not heard from them since. So that was that strange fact and finding. 
And by the way, I didn't know the Air Force knew about those strange letters before his death. I thought it was after his death. Yeah, I didn't know they knew about the letters unless, I guess, his therapist talked about the letters too or put it in a report. Hmm, maybe. All right, Dan, let's go on to this next strange fact and finding. All right, so this next strange fact and finding is about one of the medical examiners, Vincent DeMaio. So Vincent DeMaio was the medical examiner who did the first autopsy on Philip, which he was actually like a co-medical examiner. The main role was Nancy White, I believe. But yeah, now Vincent here, though, stated that most of Philip's wounds were self-inflicted and that he deliberately crashed his car. So we ended up digging around the Internet to try and find out who this medical examiner was. And boy, did we find some weird stuff. We learned that Vincent had been a part of many famous cases, like Harvey Oswald, Zimmerman, Philip Spector, and the Angel of Death Nurse. So all of those cases. That's a lot of uh, weird cases he was a part of, huh? Oh, yeah. So due to Vincent being a part of these highly controversial cases, many people believe that Vincent may have been what they call a paid gun. That pretty much he, is, he was a medical examiner for the highest bidder. Yeah. You want him to say whatever, you pay him all. Yeah. That's what the others said, which, I mean, it's kind of like a theory, you know, and that leads us into our theory section. Like, what the hell happened? Who murdered him? Was he really murdered or was it really a suicide? So the first theory that we're going to talk about is called Murder X. So this theory is that his ex-wife Nancy and her husband had set up Philip to make it look like he committed suicide. They had him kidnapped, bound him with duct tape, and then tortured him by cutting his nipples off and pinky and putting a big gash in his chest. Now, Philip was able to escape, and they started chasing him in the car to where Philip missed his exit towards his home on the interstate or to the hospital, which allowed them to catch up to him. So he kept driving a mile or so past the exit and ended up losing control or passing out because of the blood, which made him swerve off the road and crash into the trees, making it seem like he committed suicide so that she would still get the life insurance policy and wouldn't have to wait, a.k.a. Nancy getting the life insurance policy. Yeah. You know, because Philip was trying to get that policy canceled and they wouldn't allow him to cancel it since he didn't own it. So they found this as a good way to get him to meet and have his guard down as well because he did leave his home 30 minutes early than he usually would and he told Tracy, hey, I'm leaving 30 minutes early to go to work because I have some paperwork I have to finish up. But it makes you wonder if he really did meet up with Nancy instead and said, hey, I'm going to do some paperwork with her and sign off like the thing so she can end my uh, life insurance policy. But instead, she got her husband to tie Philip down and they tortured him, cut his nipples off, you know, cut his pinky off. And then he escaped and then he died. Yeah. Only reason we say that the wife and husband tortured Philip is because remember earlier we were talking about the ex-wife? She's a board-certified sex therapist, but she was studying in the sadomasochism, which is, you know, mutilation for pl sexual pleasure with mutilating others or yourself or both. Yeah, it, well, not specifically mutilation. It's just physical harm or psychological harm on yourself or others or both. Now, you seem like the expert on it. Oh, no, I'm not the expert at all. <laughs> not at all. 
But yeah, so that's that theory right there, which in my opinion, it seems plausible. But let's continue on to the next ones. And then, of course, at the end, we'll discuss, you know, what our personal thoughts and theories are. All right. So this next theory is that Philip Shue actually committed suicide. The theory goes that Philip was resentful towards Nancy, his ex-wife, since she had a total of $1 million life insurance policy on him still after their divorce. He wanted her to cancel them, but she told him no. Now, if he just committed suicide, both his ex-wife and current wife would both get insurance money. But if he made his suicide look like his ex-wife murdered him, she would not get the life insurance, but his current wife, Tracy, would still get hers. So he self-mutilated himself and duct taped his legs and feet, then ripped it off like he got away from being tortured, injected himself with lidocaine so he wouldn't be in much pain, and then crashed the car. I mean, okay, so in the report that the armed forces did, they talked about his duct tape on his wrist. Mm -hmm. So the duct tape, his wrists weren't bound together. They were duct taped separately around four to five inches of loose tape on each hand and ankle, okay? Which, it, I don't know, it's, it, they might have bound him to a chair, but it's not consistent with being bound to a chair. They'd have to have a lot more duct tape than that. There would be more. And they didn't find fingerprints on the outside of the duct tape or the inside of the duct tape of anyone else. Nope. And they said that even though he had duct tape around his wrists and ankles, there weren't any like marks on his wrists or ankles to show that he was trying to rip them off or like yeah. struggle. And also, the tape did not have uh, stretch marks that would be consistent if he was taped to a chair and trying to get off. The tape would stretch. That tape was not stretched. True. Yeah. So. I don't know, man. It's very, very strange. Very strange. All right, so let's get to the next theory, which is called the government. So with this theory, it is believed that the government had pretty much done this to get rid of Philip. Maybe Philip knew too much about certain higher-up individuals with his therapy sessions, or maybe someone released some confidential material that they were not supposed to, revealing it to Philip, who knew about it, and they decided to get rid of any loose ends. Now, to get the heat off of them, as in the government to get the heat off of them, they decided to mutilate Philip so that people would see the evidence and immediately think that it was his ex-wife Nancy with her sadomasochism studies. Eh. Eh. I'm going to keep my theory till the end, but I don't know. The government hiring somebody to torture him to see what he knows? Hey, what do you know? What did you get told to you since you're a psychologist? What did they tell you? What do you know about aliens? Cut his nipples off. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway. So do you think they started with the left nipple or the right nipple first? Well, the right nipple uh, in the autopsy report stated that it was, if I remember correctly, it was more precise. The left nipple was not as precise as the right. So the right side probably was done first because they were taking their time and all that stuff. And then the second one, they just rushed through it. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know, but they still have never found his nipples or his pinky. So it, it's out there somewhere in San Antonio, Texas, his nipples and his pinky. They're somewhere out there because they didn't find it in the car when they searched and they didn't see it outside. So, yeah. All right. So tell us about this next theory, Dan. All right. So this next theory I call the vengeful client. So in this theory, the person that could have been the one to mutilate Philip and forced him to drive away knowing he would not be able to do so carefully would be one of his clients. Since Philip was a psychiatrist, maybe one of his clients was someone in the military and was possibly discharged because of findings that may have come up during a session. 
the client was out to get Philip and found his chance the morning of April 16th when Philip left for work earlier than usual. He could have been meeting up with them to talk or something. The client then kidnaps him, tortures him, and, you know, mutilates him and pretty much gets him to drive recklessly and kill himself. Damn. Okay. So similar to uh, Nancy, but it's just a client that confessed something and is pretty much getting revenge on Philip. Yeah, because he probably was talking about something in a therapy session and with the report that was taken or whatever notes that Philip decided to take. Possibly ended up getting this guy discharged from the military, maybe. Okay. I don't know. All right. So let's get on to the next theory, which is called accident. So this theory states that due to the way that Philip crashed his vehicle and the way that he died, that it was all part of an accident. He either mutilated himself or his ex-wife did, and he left and wasn't feeling good considering, you know, what he just went through. You know, he went to meet up with her early, and she was like, ooh, let's get the freaky. And she's like, he's like, oh, cut my nipples off, babe. And she cuts his nipples off. He's like, ooh, that hurts. And then she's like, I'm going to cut your finger off, you little bitch. And she cuts it off, and he's like, ooh, daddy. And then she's like, okay, head home. And he's like, damn, I can't go home missing my nipples and my pinky finger. My wife's going to, you know, know that I cheated on her. So he's like, let me run into this tree and make it look like an accident. And then he ran into it too hard, and he died. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't actually trying to commit suicide or anything like that. He figured... I guess, crashed into the tree or something, and... Damn, what a way to go. Yeah. Anyway, all right, so let's go to our personal thoughts. Dan, I'm interested to hear your theory on this, your personal thoughts. What do you think truly happened to him? Do you think it was an accident? Do you think it was on purpose? What do you think? I think it was on purpose. So, as I was reading up on this, going through the facts that we found and everything, it kind of reminded me of the Circleville letters, how I said that it was the mother and sonna. This is the exact same thing I'm feeling here. So if the mother was in severe credit card debt and then his son, Jeffrey, had over $100,000 in debt, you know, maybe they were trying to find a way to get out of that debt to friggin' move on with life, considering Philip was no longer part of that life of theirs. But hey, let's try to get as much money as, out of them as we can. Obviously, Jeff's too old for child support, so they're not going to get anything from that now. I mean, he's 30-something years old. But Nancy still had life insurance policies on him. It's like, do we really want to wait for him to pass away of old age before we get this? Or is there a way to speed this up? And he had no medical conditions. During the autopsy report, they reviewed his health history and his physical condition, A+. plus. Yeah, he only had, what, Meniere's? Yeah, he had, um, he, he did have Meniere's disease which is like an inner ear thing. For uh, balance. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, so with Nancy having the life insurance policies on him, they're just like, you know, we could probably get him to meet up with us earlier before he goes to work or afterwards, which obviously was definitely in the morning. They got to meet up with him. They kidnapped him. And I think both of them actually mutilated him, one on each side. Then Jeffrey probably... Out of revenge, like, well, you left my mom, what, 22 years after being married to her and all that stuff, probably didn't treat her right or something like that, you know, had bad feeling towards him, said, fuck it, I'm taking your pinky. Now he wears it as a necklace, or he uses it as a chopstick, or toothpick, the bone of it as a toothpick. <laughs> he whittled it sharply and then just uses it as a toothpick and says, thanks, dad, and then puts it back up. That's dark. That is dark. But, yeah, so they pretty much into that, 
doing that. They tortured him some, and then they put him back on the road in his vehicle. What I read up is what they found in his toxicology was the lidocaine and antihistamine. If you looked at it and added it up, it could have been like 15 Benadryls that this man took. So this man was not in his right mind to drive. I mean, shoot, two Benadryls. Hey, there's a point to where if you take Benadryl and you take too much of it, it makes you hallucinate. Bad. Very bad. Ooh, let's see. Benadryl. I do. Okay. First of all, no one try this out because it is absolutely, absolutely dangerous. Absolutely horrifying. Do not do this. Benadryl. High amounts. Hallucinations. Um, let's see. What happens when you take excessive amounts of... Okay, so around 800 to 1250 milligrams to produce a hallucinogenic effect. Damn. Oh, more than 500 milligrams, which is more than 40 times the recommended dose, may lead to a state of delirium and hallucinations. Maybe they said they, you know, gave him a bunch of that, and then he was driving, hallucinating, which is why he was all over the road. Yeah. And then he ended up wrecking. That could definitely be it. Or maybe he accidentally took too much Benadryl on the way to work, started hallucinating, cut his nipples off, wrecked. Only reason I say he didn't mutilate himself in the vehicle, because they didn't find that much blood in there. Oh, yeah. They didn't find the blood. They didn't find the pinky. They didn't find his nipples in there. Okay. But now after you reading up on the Benadryl, makes me think maybe they drugged him with that first, then mutilated him to where he's hallucinating. He can't tell who they are. He had lidocaine in his system, which the amount of lidocaine, you can't just use uh, self-prescribed cream for that. Like, I think even one of the medical examiners, I think it was Vincent DeMaio, correcting himself years later, saying that this would have to be applied in a different manner as such injection. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of strange things that are surrounding this death. Uh, Me personally, I don't believe it was a suicide. Even when you look back at the Armed Forces report, he did have some, well, I say he did. According to the Armed Forces report, they alluded to him having mental instability towards the end of his life, such as he was supposed to take a test and he refused to take it and scored like a zero on it. You said, didn't you say that he had to like stand up the whole entire time to take it, but he decided to sit down? Yeah, to like prove a point. And yeah, so I don't know. See, that just doesn't match his prior like education. Yeah. Distinguished graduate and stuff like that. So he looked like he like he did what was needed to pass the classes and went beyond. And with this test, he just said, F it. Yeah. Here, let me throw this out there real quick. One final theory. Not mine, one that I read up on the internet, that some people actually believe that it was his current wife, Tracy, that actually did it. Because not only did the ex-wife, Nancy, have life insurance policy on him, but Tracy also had life insurance policy on him, which was close to $2 million worth. I think she ended up getting like $1.8 million after all this. So yeah, just to throw that out there, some people think it was her. I, I don't know. I have a hard time believing that one due to the fact of how active she is and still keeping this case alive and pretty much saying my husband's death was not suicide. There was foul play involved. Like she wants them to actually open the case up and try to find out who murdered her husband. Now, you have to be one sick serial killer or murderer to 
want to get the police through that just so they can try to catch you. Which is, no, which is why I do not believe it is her. But I do think that his death was not a suicide. It is my personal opinion. and Definitely not a suicide. And I think somebody else had a hand in it. I don't know who. I could speculate, but I don't have any solid proof to point towards it. But there you go. That's, that's what I'm going to stick with right there. I think it was the ex-wife and the son. All right. Well, thank you for your... Bastards. <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry. All right. Well, thank you for that assessment. All right. So is there anything else you want to add to this topic? Uh, honestly, I think added enough to it. I mean... We spent like two weeks researching this topic. Yeah, this was, was one of the topics we were going to do previously, but there was more information that we found like the night before we wanted to record it and we're just like, we're going to have to move it. Yeah. But anyways, I hope everyone enjoyed this topic. If you or a loved one knows what happened to Philip, Colonel Philip Shue, send us an email at Aaron at theories of the third kind.com or Dan at theories of the third kind.com. We would love to hear from you. That's right. All right. So that is the end of the episode today. Now we are going to move to our on the scene. If you don't know what our on the scene is, it is where an individual around the world goes and interviews other individuals or interviews themselves and talks about current conspiracy happenings. Now, anyone can do this. Even you listening right now can do this. All you have to do is take your phone, record yourself talking or you interviewing someone. Make sure the recording is less than two minutes long and make sure there is no background music. There are no trains and you are not eating while you are recording. OK, or chewing gum. Or chewing gum. Yeah. And um, yeah, after you get done recording it, you can email it to us and we will put it in line to play at the end of the show each week. All right. So this week's On the Scene is from Ashley V. We're going to play that right now. Hi, I'm Ash and we are on the scene with Ariella here. Hi. Ariella, do you believe in mythical creatures? I believe in fairies because they live in our house and they steal the milk in the fridge. And I believe in alicorns. And I can't really think of any other ones. Well, those two sound good. So the fairies in the fridge. Is that because there is a fairy door magnet on the fridge? No, it's a real fairy door. It's a real fairy door. <laughs> and they go in and out of it stealing milk. Yes. Is that why we keep running out of milk? Yes. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> Do you think they steal and hide other things around the house, too? Yes, they and steal your phone a million bajillion times. And put it back when we're not looking? Yes. I think so, too. <laughs> Those silly little fairies... I think we'll give them a pass, though, huh? They probably do us little favors, too. Fairies. Fairies. There you go. Fairies. Fairies. It was very nice interviewing you today. It was. Fairies. Over and out. Hope you all enjoy. We love you. And we're proud of you. Nice. I like that. Fairies. Fairies. (laughs) Do you ever get your milk stolen by fairies, Dan? No, unfortunately not. But we don't have a fairy door on our fridge door. Maybe we need to get one so we can test this out. Yeah. Hey, uh, Ashley, if you could set up a camera, get some pictures of those fairies. We'd love to see them. Dude, hell yeah. Nice. But hey, thank you for your on the scene this week. We love you and we are proud of you. Much love. All right. So now we are going to go into birthday shout outs. We're going to do birthday shout outs from last week and this week. 
So there's going to be a few, to say the least. All right, so a first birthday shout-out this week goes to Max. His birthday is December 15th, which is today. Happy birthday, Max. Happy birthday, Max. Mad Max. We talked about watching that movie. Mad Max Fury Road. Chef's Kiss. Great movie. So our next birthday shout-out goes to Matthew Morningstar. His birthday was December 12th, which was three days from you listening to this episode. So happy birthday to you, Matthew Morningstar. Are you like a mace? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was thinking about. The Diablo 2 mace, Morningstar. That's right. Happy birthday, Matthew Morningstar. Proud of you. All right, so our next birthday shout-out goes to Letha. And her birthday was December 11th. And this birthday shout-out is from her dad, Jake. Happy birthday, Letha. Happy birthday, Letha. Your dad says you could uh, take his card and go buy whatever you want. Dang, we going shopping. So our next birthday shout-out goes to Ash. Her birthday was December 11th, and she requests y'all say we love you and proud of you. We were going to say that anyways, Ash. Happy birthday, and hey, you know what? I love you, and I am proud of you. Happy birthday, Ash. Love you, and I'm proud of you. Nice. All right, so our next birthday shout-out goes to Nathan Gelter. His birthday was December 12th, and he requested a macho man, Randy Savage, shout-out. You, let me tell you something, Nathan. Uh, you, you come up and uh, you cream of the cup. Uh, you, I got you for three seconds. Three seconds of playtime. Happy birthday. Nice. Happy birthday. So our next birthday shout-out goes to Michael Rosales. I hope I said your name right. Well, his birthday was on December 14th, and he wanted a birthday shout-out. So happy birthday, Michael. Happy birthday, Michael. I hope it was good. Yeah. All right, so our next birthday shout-out is to Javier. His birthday is on December 10th, and he requested a birthday shout-out in a funny voice. And this birthday shout-out is from Zara. And I'm pretty sure I pronounced your name wrong, and I apologize. But hey, you know what, Javier? Happy birthday. I hope it's really good. I love you, and I'm proud of you. Happy birthday, Javier. <laughs> I love, I love those, impre- those uh, things that we have now. All right, so our next birthday shout-out goes to Oliver. He turned eight years old on December 9th, and he wants a birthday shout-out in a Bigfoot impersonation. Well, hold on. We got Bigfoot right over here, don't we, Dan? Hold on. That's right. All right, bring him in. Let's see what he's... Hold on. Come over here to, to Dan's microphone. All right. We need you to tell Oliver happy eighth birthday. Happy birthday, Oliver. Hope it's a good one. And vote for me in 2024. Peace out. Happy birthday, Oliver. I hope it's good. Friggin' Bigfoot can't even stop, you know, campaigning just for a birthday. It's crazy. Dude, Bigfoot, man. He's only eight years old. He can't vote yet. Come on. Happy birthday, Oliver. I hope it's a good one. Yes, happy birthday, Oliver. All right. So the next birthday shout out we got is to Michael, and his birthday is on December 18th. And he says, I want to request a birthday shout out. And you say, We love you, Nay. So, We love you, Nay. We love you, Nay. Nice. I feel like there was like other part of that name that we can't say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next birthday shout out goes to Danny. Birthday is on December 15th, which is today. And requesting the birthday shout-out be Golem and then to give a meow. Meow. Oh, Aaron seems to do it pretty good over there. Meow. You role-play as a kid. Little kitten. Meow. Meow. <laughs> Happy birthday, Jenny. Meow. Happy birthday. Meow. <laughs> All right. So our last birthday shout-out goes to Brandon DeGraff. His birthday is today, December 15th. And it's his 21st birthday. Birthday, birthday, birthday. <laughs> birthday. 
So Brandon, you're probably listening to this. You're probably out and about probably getting totally, you know what? Shit faced. Maybe he's not. Maybe he doesn't drink. Okay. How dare you assume that? Maybe he's at home reading a nice book, enjoying a good video game that he purchased for himself, or maybe not. Maybe he's out drinking, doing body shots. Exactly. Cause that's what he emailed. He said he was going to go do. Oh, <laughs> he said he was going to be out drinking. So just be safe out there, man. Have fun, but be safe. You just shit your pants? No, I just said that. Oh, it sounds like it sounds like you farted. I thought I did for a second. They're like, hey, birthday, Brandon. <laughs> Happy birthday. Here's a rip for you. All right. So we got two more birthday shout outs. We have a regular shout out to Drew Baca. Here's your shout out, Drew Baca. Love you, proud of you. And we have a wedding shout out that I guess is on December 11th. That's their anniversary. And it goes to Gammy and Leslie. I'm thinking I pronounced that right. I don't know. Congratulations. Congratulations. And I'm very upset we didn't get invited to the wedding. Yeah, but here's your shout out. Hope you like it. Yeah. yeah. Next time of invitation be nice. <laughs> All right. So do you got any other shout outs or anything before we roll this episode out? I felt like I had one, but I have no idea where it went. So my fault. All right. We'll save it for next week. All right. Well, that's the end of the episode today. We hope you all loved it. If you have any recommendations, you can send that to our emails and make sure you put in the subject line recommendations and make sure to be safe out there during the holiday seasons when driving and make sure you don't get murdered. Okay. And have your nipples cut off. I want to say that we are proud of you and that we love you and we will see you next week. So Dan, do you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts because you are not alone.